Okay, here we go. Lecture, I'm sorry, June 5th, uh, blah, blah, blah. June 5th, 2011, lecture discussion number 38 on the Book of Romans. And uh, for those who attended last Sunday um, and are still wondering, what Ezekiel 3, 16 through 21, and John 4, 24, and Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7, and 1 John 5, 7, which is what? That's the John Hanin comma. Sometimes I say Yohanin because I get confused with Hebrew pronunciations of the name John. But uh, we should call it the John Hanin comma. And then, of course, Romans 3, 19 through 26. What do those passages have to do with the ubiquity of law? And perhaps uh, today we'll clear all of that up for you, or uh, perhaps not. And probably perhaps not. Perhaps not happens a lot around here, and you may have noticed that. But anyway, for those who skipped last Sunday, what were you doing? You were gallivanting around the state in pursuit of mosquitoes and rain. And I, I took that opportunity, knowing you would be gone, be gone uh, to uh, bombard the most uh, highest and most holy who attend on holidays here with Ezekiel 3:16 through 21, 1 John 5:7, Deuteronomy 17. 6 through 7. Now, I say that for the people who listen by Internet and want to write all of that down. And uh, because those three passages, more specifically, how they impact where we are and where we're headed is very important. And eventually, I'll get all of that tied together, a nice new bowed package for you, and you uh, hopefully will follow along and understand. Specifically, the issue is this. It, it's starting to become this. It's the issue of our responsibilities while we are on this earth. That's why I read uh, Ezekiel 3:16 through 21, because that is the watchman and the warning section, the warnings that we are to shout out, the testimony that we are to give, the fact that each one of us are required to be a witness, and that is, that's a legal term. Um, that means that we're going to be called to a court procedure, each one of us a witness, and the judge of all things, Jesus Christ. That's in John 5.22. He's called the judge of all things. All judgment is in the hands of Jesus Christ. All judgment. He establishes us as witnesses. He did so in John 15.27. Again, how do we witness? That's where we were last week. How do we, what, what warnings do we give? Whom is it that we are trying to warn? What, what testimony? Uh, how does this fit with the legal procedures and the legal proceedings that are the great white throne judgment? And that's Revelation 20:11. And all of that, how does that fit with uh, Romans 3:19 through 26, which is the ubiquity of law? And I'm trying to pound that into you. And you may also remember from last Sunday that I read an email from Jennifer in Arizona. And she specifically asked about the ubiquity of law and the metaphysical implications therein, and how the John Hanin comma is connected to the ubiquity of law. And uh, Okay, she didn't exactly ask that. But she sort of did. She may not have known it. What she wanted to do was try to bring into balance her pursuit of wisdom. Because she wants to pursue wisdom. Is that good? That's really good. But she knew she also had to to balance the deep things of God and then her behavior that is God-honoring. And all of us have that issue, right? And I said last week that that is substance dualism. It may not seem like that. To, to, it might be surprised somewhat to hear that that's the case or that I think it is, but that shouldn't surprise you because that is the mind, the renewing of the mind, and then how it outwardly 
manifests itself through the body. So it's the renewing of our mind and the outward manifestation of that believing mind focused on spiritual truth. If the mind's focused on spiritual truth and has wisdom, it will affect the outward actions that are, are sent through the body, right? And so, fear of God, finding wisdom, which is, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So once you have the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, 10, um, and he does, he tells us, listen, we're to cry out to him for discernment. We're to care deeply about searching for hidden treasures. We're to incline our ears towards wisdom. That's Proverbs 2, 1 through 12. Wisdom keeps the believer on the paths. Paths, I barely said that, more, more medicine. Wisdom keeps the believers on the paths of uprighteousness, Proverbs 2.13. Again, I hope you recognize in all of that, the metaphysical, the mind, the consciousness, your essence, your immortal component that will never die. The mind, the unseen. Okay? You see that part. That's the part that focuses on wisdom. And then the physical, which is seen by others, the witness, if you will. That's James, uh, in case you think James and Romans uh, are in conflict. They are not. One is uh, Abraham at Genesis 15. That's Romans. The other was Abraham at Genesis uh, when he's taking Isaac up the mountain. That's his witness, I think, Genesis 22. Check me on that. But You have the mind, the unseen, and then you have the physical, the body, which is seen, and that is the revelation of the mind. I know what your mind is thinking by looking at what you are doing physically with your body, what your mind is making your body do. The mind animated, made, animated, made manifest, uh, that is the supernatural and the natural in concert together, radically uh, intertwined. So, again, start connecting that. The mind made manifest. The invisible made visible. Start putting that connection together in Scripture, right? Start start putting the image of God with all of that. If I said to you, the invisible made visible, who is that? That's one of the titles of Christ, isn't it? And you are made how? In the image of God. How does that work? Anyway, Jennifer in Arizona apparently is going about Arizona uh, happily sharing uh, lectures from Cliffside. And she's expecting positive responses. Yeah. How, How do you think that's working out for Jennifer in Arizona? And what do you suppose is the uh, typical reaction to her? And needless to say, not surprisingly, Jennifer has sent us another email. (laughs) I did write to her. I said, uh, uh, let me read this part. Uh, I won't read the rest of my answer, uh, just this part. I I told her I would send her a CD, and I said, we provide this uh, service free to all softball-playing buffet eaters named Jennifer in Arizona. It is church policy. Also, as an aside, since this will be the second email from you that I have read on consecutive uh, Sundays, as a matter of fact, the class may boo. Uh, do not take this personally. They boo me most every Sunday. Think of it as a form of endearment. So, Lori sent that to her today. I did not. As you know, I simply wrote it. But here's Jennifer from Arizona who has been listening to Cliffside Community Chapel 
and now has gone about telling her neighbors. <laughs> Bless their hearts. <laughs> uh, message. Hi, Pastor. Why is it that Christians are fearful and skeptical of a pastor who brings depth, knowledge, understanding, and clarity to God's word in a way like no other? <laughs> oh, thank you, Jennifer. The entire group here appreciates this. Are they reflecting their own convictions, their own desires to know more? I'm getting this response. <laughs> well, we've never gotten that, Jennifer, not one time. No one has ever responded to to me that way. Obviously, I'm kidding. I'm getting this response when I bring up all I'm getting from your messages. God gave me a brain that isn't satisfied with the surface stuff. I like depth, and I found more than ever in your sermons. It has increased my faith tremendously. Who wouldn't want that? So thankful to have come across your messages. Wish I didn't live 2300 and 5.5 miles away because I'm a softball player and I like buffets. Okay. So, let me put that over here because I have another one to do as well from Sharon in Texas. Uh, now, a couple of things. Some of you is, uh, may be thinking that I have a hidden agenda for reading these things and I realize that you're suspicious and questioning my motives, you suspect uh, that, uh, um, that, well, you're postulating that I'm reading these emails from the Internet audience as evidence that there's a vast group of thousands upon thousands who have found me to be likable, and if not entertaining, uh, and even brilliantly funny. I know that that's a shock to you, and I know, because uh, I can hear the murmuring, uh, I can hear, how can this be? that this woman would uh, would write that, and who could foresee such a thing? And, and I, that's resonating, I can hear you. And I know you're also thinking he's making them up, writing them himself. I, I know you're thinking that. And that's obvious, you should see your faces. And and that's not true, because that would, in, that would violate my self-imposed uh, email prohibition. I don't email. I have never emailed. Lori will argue. She'll say, I sent an email to Coca-Cola to get a free Diet Coke. And, and that caused a response from them in the millions of uh, <laughs> return emails. I didn't email them. I pushed a button. That's a totally different thing. But I don't email. I don't eat raw oysters or raw fish. I don't have a cell phone. I don't play video games. Uh, and if you ever see the headline, Steve Chronister dies accidentally while climbing mountain, that is murder. I, I do not climb mountains. Steve Chronister accidentally chokes to death on sushi. That is murder. Not even, not even clever. Just out and out pure overt murder. Steve Chronister suffers massive heart attack while running marathon. No, I was poisoned. That's murder. Now, a 40-foot ladder hanging off a roof, self-inflicted gunshot, nail gunshot wound, uh, doing high-voltage electrical work while the electricity is still turned on, poisoned by paint fumes and lacquer thinner and polyurethane injection and softball to face. A fight breaks out at church service. I'll give you all of that. That's all there. That's 
That could happen. Okay, now I want, I want you to notice Jennifer's last question because I read it with emphasis. Who wouldn't want that, she asked. And you responded really well and I hope she could hear that. Who wouldn't want that? And, and all you guys know very well, what I try to do every lecture, every Sunday, is to show the portraits of Jesus Christ on every page of the Old Testament, the Christology, and then I try to fit it together in the New Testament. Let me ask it again. Who wouldn't want that? And then I want to declare every time I can, that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty, the great I Am, the Ancient of Days, the Creator of all things, the Creator of time, that He's the second person of the triune God. Never miss a Sunday. Or I try not to. Who wouldn't want that? I try to show that the Bible is the inspired, perfect, literal Word of God unimaginably complex, filled with wisdom, mysteries, treasures, answers, sound doctrine, life. Who wouldn't want that? And so this rhetorical question I would give you. Why would they want instead that which is according to their own desires? Where am I in the Bible now? I'm in Second Timothy. 2 Timothy 4. Why would they want instead that which is according to their own desires? Why would they want instead that which will only itch their ears? Why would they want instead someone uh, who would focus on storytelling? They would turn aside from the truth and be turned, therefore, into storytelling. Especially this made up from the whole cloth nonsense. You can buy the books, chicken soup for the Christian church. Chicken soup for the pastor to spice up his sermons. Comedy is hard. Mike talked about it. Try to be more interesting by doing what? Making up a story and pretending it's true in order to do what? Make people laugh, make people cry, make people give you money. Well, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Second Timothy 4-5. through 5. What's the obvious question there? Who's the they? Who is the they that will not endure sound doctrine? We, however, shall endeavor to be watchful in all things and fulfill our responsibilities. But I believe this time, this is the time that has come. This is the time of fables and stories that are crud. This is the time where the church does that and does it to collect money. That's Laodicea, as you know, that is Revelation 3.16. Anyway, one more thing to address before we get to to the start of today's sermon. Before we get to Thomas Young's double slit experiment, which is Romans 3.19-21. And once again... I got another email I'm going to read. Uh, This time it's uh, from Sharon, uh, and I didn't know that she was from Texas until we got a second email, uh, which I I read to you already. Let me find the... Oh, here it is. So I have an email to read this time from Sharon, the grandma. And as you know, grandmas are highly esteemed here. They're held uh, in great reverence. and, And one thing we note is that there's not very many of them as there should be. Who heard that? 
There should be at least one more grandma that I can think of at the top of my head. Okay, so here we go. Message from Sharon, the grandma from Texas. Now we know that. So she writes this message. Could you uh, explain to me why you say Adam was not with Eve when she ate the fruit? Please. Does not husband with her mean that that he was present? Thank you so much for your great sermons, Sharon. And thank you, Sharon, for sending us emails that I can use in the... uh, They actually fit very well because, as I said, uh, this is federal headship area. Now, this is a question that I get quite often, and it's actually um, it's very important to work through, and it's central to Adam's fall as the federal head of humanity and the legal consequences that accompany the fall of Adam. It's... I don't want to say it's hypercritical, but it's getting very close to that. It's the key. Uh, Only two have held the title of federal head of humanity. One of those is Adam. Adam has held that title. And, And through Adam came death and sin. It entered all. And the other two have held this title, or who holds this title, the current federal head, uh, is Jesus Christ, through whom salvation, through whom life is legally made accessible. Notice how I said that. So you have to know that the fall of Adam is the fall of a federal head. The decision to sin, sin by Adam is made by the federal head, and it had legal consequences. And it's very important for you to note, this is a court or a law issue. This is something that has to go to trial. This is something that is... Um, adjudicated because of its consequences. Eve's decision to sin, who did it impact? It impacted Eve. Who else? No one else. And I shouldn't call her Eve at this point. The woman's decision to, to sin impacted the woman. It's limited to herself. Adam, the man, the federal head, his decision, uh, the repercussive effects were massive, far-reaching, encompassing in ways that we've yet to discover. There is great difference between Eve's decision and Adam's decision. Know that going into that story. Do not compare Eve's fall with Adam's fall as if they were equal. They are not equal. Not. The fall of the federal head is an extraordinary event. It's devastating. It's incomparable, except maybe by who? Satan's fall. Perhaps we could compare Ezekiel 28 or Satan's deliberate decision to sin to Adam's deliberate decision to sin. Next, after you've got that in your head, and Sharon, I'm just... Um, I'm not being upset or anything. It's just how I do things sometimes in this subject. Don't Please don't think that I'm frustrated with you. You asked an outstanding question that needs to be asked in every church every day almost because it is the fall of the federal head. Adam, you got to know this, was not deceived, First Timothy 2.14. Not deceived. That's also hypercritical that everyone understands that. Not deceived by Satan, which is amazing, but also not deceived by who else? Eve, or the woman. He was not deceived by the woman ever. No possibility. Have no position that has Adam being deceived by anyone. Period. If you have a position that says Eve somehow beguiled Adam into taking the poison then your position is unmerited 
undefensible, indefensible, and not well thought through. Sorry if that's your view. Not really. That's, that's a fake sorry. Okay? Have no position that Adam has been deceived by anyone, period. It puts you in conflict with 1 Timothy 2.14, right off the bat. And if you're in conflict with Scripture, you're in, you're in conflict. Serious conflict. Trouble. Now, notice the Matthew 4 compliment to Genesis 3. I've done this, actually. I don't know what sermon it is. I know it's titled by date and number and not by anything other than that. But I want you to know that Matthew 4 is the compliment in the New Testament to Genesis 3. And there are charts and commentaries over Matthew 4 uh, comparing it to Genesis 3. These two are to be studied side by side and two halves to one whole. And then, of course, you add in Genesis 15 and Matthew 26, 36 through uh, 46. Genesis 15 is the solution to sin with the furnace and the lamp going through the cut pieces. And Matthew 26, 36 through 46 is Christ in Gethsemane saying, let this cup pass. All of those are together. Have no position about Adam and what he did and how he did it and when he did it that isn't consistent with all the that I have mentioned so far. Now, Going on, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, the second Adam, is he's the last Adam, that makes sense. He is the second and last federal head of humanity. There's no other federal head will come. He, he repairs, if you will, or restores, if you will. He solves the unsolvable of Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 and Genesis 15 and Matthew 26, 36 through 46. That's what that's about. So mix that in to your assessment of what's going on in Genesis 3. Then, of course, you have the typology of Adam. What I mean by that is that Adam... Romans 5.14 is said in Scripture. And when somebody is said, I have people all the time come to me and say that uh, Adam is not mentioned uh, in the righteous uh, and, and we're worried that he isn't saved. Wow. First off, he's covered by blood that God himself pours on him. Okay? The skins that are a type of the, uh, uh, the covering the garment of Christ. But second, Adam is a type of Christ. Romans 5.14, a type. He is called a type. And you've got to consider that. He's not a contrast to Christ. He's a type. Tupos is the word. And it means exactly as I said. Type. He's an example of Christ. How good is it to be an example of Christ? That's pretty good. Now, How exactly, obvious question here, how exactly did Adam portray Christ? Both, let me just quickly do this again, both had a bride come from their side. The word is sela, T-S-E-L-A, it means side. Both had a punctured side, and out of the punctured side came the bride of each one of them. And both of them, of course, uh, Adam in a deep sleep, Christ on the cross, you can make the case that uh, that is death in both cases. Now, the difference is, is that to pierce Christ's side, what do you have to have? Yes, his permission, his consent, absolutely right. And this takes you into Thomas. What did Thomas see? I ask this question all the time whenever I get into the piercing of Christ. When Thomas is in front of Christ, is he looking at healed scars? No, he's not. He's looking at holes that are permanently there. Exodus 19. Permanently there. Maybe Exodus 17. Check me out. Permanently there. Scars that are permanently there. Holes, if you will, that are permanently there. What did Thomas see? Did he see Matthew 17? I believe he did. 
I think he was able to see the Shekinah glory. But anyway, Adam is a type of Christ. He portrays Christ, and that's critical to understanding what it means that the woman gave to the man who is with her. And Eve is also a type of the church. She is builded from the side of the first Adam, and the church is builded from the side of the last Adam. She is clearly a type of the bride of Christ, okay? And she's also a type of Israel. You see that Genesis 3.15 where it says enmity will be put between the woman and Satan. And that's, of course, what's happening today in our lifetime. Satan is in, in conflict, in hatred of the nation of Israel. So, the typologies of both Adam and Eve must be consistent with any position that one ascribes to and then throw in the Hebrew uh, betrothal ceremony pattern as well where the woman is sanctified and set alone while she waits for the bridegroom. The fact that, and, and also keep in mind that uh, um, we have a bride that is separated the instant she chooses sin, right? And we have two grooms, the last and the first groom. And I said that correctly. And they are, they make decisions that are not one is sin, one is deliberate sin, the other is the repair or the restoration of that. Don't misunderstand me there. But let me keep going. The fact that Adam names the woman life, life, you have to figure out why he would name this dying woman life. It's a key. And, and finally, or not finally, not quite yet, with her, or, um, she gave to her husband with her. That's got to be defined as God defines it. And it's got to be a definition consistent with the aforementioned. Everything I've given to you to this point has to fit with your definition of with, with her. Eve, the woman, was first into transgression, first into sin, 1 Timothy 2.14. She fell into transgression, deceived by Satan. Adam went deliberately into sin without being deceived by anyone. Just as, by the way, Satan went deliberately into sin without anyone deceiving him. How much did Satan know about Adam? How many times have you heard me say this before? How many times did he take a run at Adam? To be undeceived by Satan makes you a spectacular creature. Now, if Eve is the first into sin, and it's, there's no doubt that she is, she is the first into sin. If she's the first into sin, and she's not alone with Satan while she falls into sin, what have you said about Adam? Where does sin begin? She is the first into sin. Where does sin begin? It begins where? In the mind. If you ever have God as the author of sin, and I know there's many that do that, I read all their sermons all the time because I need to know about this, this kind of stuff. If you have God as the author of sin, then where have you put sin? Inside of the mind of God. What have you done to the goodness of God when you do that? You have destroyed His ability to judge now and hold accountable. So anyone that says to you that the mind of God is the source or the genesis of all sin, then you have to say, that reminds me very much of Matthew 4 and Genesis 3, which is where we start with the lie of Satan. 
Now, again, if, C, if Eve was not alone with Satan, if Adam went with her, what is the condition of Adam? I submit to you it is obvious that he is in a sinful condition, in which case Timothy is in error. With, or, I'm sorry, not in error. It's in conflict now with your position. And let me ask you this. What is the opposite of with her? Obviously, not with her. And it says, the, women gave, the woman gave the poison to the man who was with her. And I'm telling you that the decision to be with her and to take the poison is a free will choice by Adam. It's a free will decision to be with the dying, filthy bride in sin, to go to her, the dying, filthy bride in sin who has lost her covering and needs a new covering. And do they make one? Yeah, they, make, they each make one. And that is an incredible understanding of, uh, of uh, salvation, by the way. So it's a free will decision by Adam to be with the dying, filthy bride who has fallen, deceived into sin, who has no garment. And this, by the way, the Bible is written, you have to know this. Uh, I, 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 this is critically important as well. Hebrew recurrence. I'm not going to write it on the board because I've got a lot to write here in a minute. Hebrew recurrence. The Hebrews write this way. They will give you a piece of information in a sentence, and then they'll give you another piece of information in the same sentence. And you will think what? You will think that they, that they think like you, and they don't. Those two facts can be separated by vast amounts of time. It's called Hebrew recurrence. The very position that just because it says she gave to the husband with her does not mean that he was with her at the time she fell. You have to have a position that accommodates all this other uh, information that I've given you because Hebrew recurrence, the principle of Hebrew recurrence, uh, is, is especially common in Genesis. And I submit to you that it, there's two events here in that sentence or in that, uh, in that uh, part of, the, of Genesis 3. One event is the deception and fall of Eve, and now I have time inserted the uh, second event is the decision of the federal head, Adam. The key here is how much time. Okay? That's all I can devote to to that for today. I know it's someplace else on the Internet, uh, Sharon. I don't know where. I did it a lot better than that the first time I did it. I hope you can find it. I gave your email to Dave and Ben, and now I have no more responsibility, which is how I like it. <coughs> okay. Now we're going to start the sermon. Cool, huh? Tell the visitor not to worry. Pass him a note or something. Okay, Romans 3, 19 through 20. You will say something when I do this again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Notice how I keep rereading this, just like I keep telling you Romans 1.17 and Romans 3.10. I want you to keep to focus this on this today. 
I said these are stop signs. 117 of Romans is a stop sign. Don't go any further until you have this figured out or you will fail, essentially. You will go into the ditch. Uh, Romans 3.10 the same way. And now here we go, Romans 3.19 and 20. Let me read this again. The law is the knowledge of sin. I want you to ask immediately, how exactly is that so? And, and what is this law again? What's the definition of law? And how does one demonstrate either the keeping of the law or the failure to keep the law? And again, back to, we answered this already. When the sins start, where? It's in the mind. And it's very important to know that. Now, time to pass out the supplemental textbooks. So, as I call your name, please come and get your textbook. You guys, or actually, I can hand them out to you almost, can't I? Because nobody is around. I can walk around. It's untethered. Isn't that amazing? Okay, do you have one, young lady? You need one? Yes, you do. You should have plenty, when, and we get all that are left over. Okay? I am passing out, for those of you who are watching by, or listening by internet, I am I'm passing out Who Made God by Professor Edgar Andrews, who is a renowned physicist and scientist, who happens to be a literal creationist, and who takes on, will you two share ever? Okay. One said no, truthfully. Okay. I will hand this to her. I've learned that already. There you go. No, you don't. You don't have to share. Robin asked me, do I have to share with my kids? No, you don't, because we know kids don't share. We know that. Okay, who still needs a copy here? Okay. Yay. Notice how happy they are to get something free from church instead of the other way around. I'm coming. Look at Jane. Look at me. I, I can't share. I told you not to sit back there, Jane. <laughs> okay. I have one left who absolutely promises me that they will read this book. Who absolutely promises me. Who does not have one that I think should have one? Raise your hand if you do not have one. I don't believe you. Come and get it, Eric. <laughs> Some of you have the capacity to uh, to find it just as we did, but I want you to, now you're required to bring it with you for the next few Sundays. Uh, how many Sundays do I think that will be? Oh, maybe a year. And Sharon, at this point I should tell you there's 105 sermons on Genesis, and uh, 1 through 19, and we're going to do our best to get that to you. Okay, now... 
Uh, turn to page 123. All of you, open your books, your supplemental textbooks to page 123. And this is what we're going to read today together. It is just simply the introduction. It is chapter 9. Okay, put down your pens and pencils. Put down your emailing so you don't get in trouble. I can still reach you with an eraser. Look over somebody's shoulder if you can, or listen very carefully. I'm going to read it to you. Chapter 9, Edgar Andrews, Who Made God? Searching for a Theory of Everything. Chapter 9, in which we recognize the universal, I can barely say it, the universality of law in human conscience, human nature, human society and mull over its significance. What he's saying there is that law is universal, and that has great significance in human consciousness and human nature, and mull over the implications of that. In chapter 10, we're going to explore how the hypothesis of God addresses the laws of nature, but before doing so, we're going to pause to notice something that is easily overlooked. This is the fact that God's hand as the lawgiver is seen in every aspect of human society and experience, not just those areas accessible to science. God's law is everywhere. It is ubiquitous. It is universal. Beginning with bed knobs and broomsticks, with games, sports, and families, we see that human social behavior at all levels is permeated and regulated by rules and laws. Not only does law underpin human society, it also manifests itself in our consciousness, our consciences, as we distinguish right from wrong and act accordingly. Altruism. We know good from bad. Because of law. Can all this be the result of evolution? Or does it make more sense to follow the hypothesis of God and see all law as flowing from a transcendent yet paternal lawgiver? We'll get some answers by asking three further questions. Namely, why is law so universal throughout the cosmos? Because it is. Law is universal. How did it get that way? How can you explain this universality, this ubiquitous law? How can that be explained? How do laws originate? Where did they come from? Who made the laws? And then the applicational part. Why should we care? Okay? So you have the responsibility now, before we start next week, to read chapter 9. It's 12 pages. I know that's a lot. 12 whole pages. You have to put down the cell phone for about three minutes. Walk away from the video game for maybe six minutes. And that's where we're going to be next week. Now, start the sermon. I have this issue going on. You need to know about the issue. I've brought it up before. I have what is called classical Newtonian physics. and That is the physics that governs the physical around you. 
Okay, it's his laws of motion, or if you will, the laws of mechanics. Mechanics means motion. Okay, and then I have that conflict. I have that versus, if you will, quantum mechanics or quantum motion. And you'll hear me say uh, quantum theory, quantum mechanics, and quantum physics all as if they are one and the same. They're not quite that way, but that's that's okay. They're mostly interchangeable. Classical physical laws of motion, if you want to, for example, launch a missile and hit somebody's house with it, couple of miles away, it could be a potato gun, you're going, or you're going to do something that has got motion and energy and trajectory. Those laws of motion, those laws of mechanics, the classical Newtonian physics, that's what you'll use. And all those laws will help you figure out how to hit your target. Shooting a rifle over vast distances, how to get an arc and trajectory, how to account for wind. How to account for the speed of the bullet, the amount of force that shoots the bullet, the length of the barrel, the amount of rotation. How to make that thing hit what you're trying to shoot at. That's classical Newtonian physics. And all of those things, all those laws will teach you and help you come to those correct. You want to build a bridge. Uh, You want a faster race car. All of that classical Newtonian physics. And it will never fail you. It will always work. The problem is, at the microscopic level, they don't work at all. Newtonian physics totally, completely fail when you get to the microscopic or the subatomic level. So what do I have here? I have the seen versus the what? The unseen. Does that ring a bell for you? Newton, a great Bible scholar, by the way, believed his greatest work in his life was his commentary on the book of Revelation. He believed that. wasn't quite true. Bless his heart. But he cared so much about it, it's amazing what he cared about. Newton's laws, and, and the great physicist that he is, and Huygens as well, the, the other physicists that you'll have to know, but you don't know today, those two guys did extraordinary work. But... Nothing that they thought was true is true at the microscopic level. So the smaller I go, as I go into the atomic level, what's called subatomic diameter, as you've heard me say many, many times, we have to have new laws. But the point is, is that what, 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 what do we have? We do have them. But the laws are completely different. And that leads to a foundational question. It's, it's really Greek philosophy. Here's what I'm giving you now. It leads to a foundational question. Is nature, is matter, is this that I think is here and I think is real, physical reality, is physical reality, is matter, is it a thing? In other words, let me put it this way. Is it thing-like? So is matter thing-like or is it stuff-like? That is Greek philosophy. You heard it here first. You have to make a decision. How many of you would like to move to the stuff-like side of the auditorium? How many of you believe that matter, physical reality, is stuff-like? Raise your hand. Never raise your hand here. How many of you believe that physical reality, yourself, your physical body, is thing-like? 
Very good. None of you raised your hand. I'm so impressed. Takes a while to get that back into you. The Greek atomists, they went with thing-like. They said matter, physical reality, is thing-like. It's made up of indivisible units and empty space or void. That's what matter is. I have things and I have empty space. And, and they asserted that it, that's the composition of matter. That is how matter, what consists in matter. Indivisible units and, and empty space. Discrete individual units. Non-divisible. Let me keep repeating that. And thus, their question becomes, because they're thing-like, their question became, how many, how many things are there? How many things are in uh, this soda can, this Diet Coke can that I treasure, that I call medicine? How many things are in there? And I saw a demonstration here recently where a guy had a cube of aluminum and talked about how many trillion trillions of atoms were there. Hundreds of trillions, a hundred millions of atoms just on the edges of this one inch cube of aluminum. And so their question became, they said everything is thing-like, so the question becomes, as I said, how many things are there? And Aristotle, I hope you know him, I hope you had at least some education that um, not necessarily the case anymore, is it? Aristotle disagreed with that. He, he saw matter as stuff. He didn't accept empty space. He abhorred a vacuum, if you will. That's one of his famous quotes. He, he said there's no such thing as empty space. Nothing is something. Does that make sense to you? If that makes sense to, to you, you're, you're falling into Aristotle's thought process. And also mine. He said nothing was something and everything is divisible. So it became this argument between discrete individual things, units, versus smooth, continuous stuff. And that argument has raged all the way up into the 20th century until we got to about 1920 where we began to understand quantum theory. So... The, the discussion to repeat, how many things versus how much stuff? And, and think of it this way, if you will. This is the way it was probably taught to me uh, the, the earliest. Uh, marbles versus oozing mud. Do you think that matter is composed of marbles, and therefore it is thing-like, or do you think it is oozing mud, and therefore stuff-like? And I got this, I recently came across this analogy, which I find superior to, to the way I was taught. Uh, peas on a plate. Think of your, think of matter as peas on a plate, or you have a plate, and you have peas on the plate. That would be individual unit things, right? And you have mashed potatoes, which would be stuff. Things are stuff. And obviously a kid would immediately do what to the peas? Mash them all up and you'd have... But, but don't do that. Uh, who could blame him for that, by the way? Feed those to the dog. Um, but let's say focus. Atomist or Aristilian. Okay, that's your, that's your two positions. Stuff-like, thing-like. Uh, and, and next is Copenhagen or hidden. Copenhagen says this, matter is governed by the laws of probability. So that's how matter functions. It's in motion and, it, it, and, and how it moves is based on probabilities. 
uh, and the hidden people say no. There is no probability, or there is no luck. There is no possibility. Everything is 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 moved by a hidden force. And if we could find the hidden force, we would eliminate the probability. So you have probability or hidden force. There's a third view that's called the world's view. Do I expect, by the way, any of you are following me? No. What's my solution for that? Yes, the ball bat method of beating it into you. Pretty soon, you will be able to get this. This is quantum theory. It isn't easy. I'm making it a lot simpler than than uh, perhaps uh, you could ever imagine. It may be too simple, but nonetheless, my goal is to get you to get it. Why? Yes, because of the implications of understanding it. I do not seek out for you to be stuck on the simple. I do not want you to go through life identified as a fool. I don't want you to love foolishness. I think the church has an absolute role to bring up the understanding. If somebody says, I'm a Christian, the world should say, there is someone with wisdom, not someone whose money is taken from them so easily. It's ridiculous. Not someone who will believe the rapture occurred on May the 21st. Not somebody that dumb. Christians are people who have answers. Christians are people we go to when we are in desperate trouble. So, matter is governed by the laws of probability or by a hidden force. That's your other, that's where we're, you have to begin to concept that. that either probability makes matter, uh, governs matter, or there is a hidden force, if you will, a secret force that we have not yet identified that governs how matter responds. And, and as I said, there's a third view, the world view, but right now I'm going to limit it to probability or hidden force. Finally, I know everyone loves um, loves that word, finally. Thomas Young, 1773 to 1829. Okay, I'm going to go a little longer. Don't get, don't get aggressive. i got one more page, and it's tough, and you need to listen to it. Sorry. Have a seat. We're going to go past my allotted time. Hiding in the office isn't going to work for the musicians this time. Thomas Young, 1773 to 1829. He was a British physician, so he was a doctor. He was also a physicist. He was fluent in 13 languages. He was one of the, one of the prominent men who translated the Egyptian hieroglyphics with the Rosetta Stone. By age six... He had read the Bible twice and was fluent in Latin, in case you feel mistakenly that you are accomplished. I wanted to put him on the table. Thomas Young did this double split or double slit, sorry, experiment, and it's something that everyone must understand. Every one of you, I'm going to get you all to understand this. I want you to ask why you must understand it eventually. So this is an optics physics experiment because it's asking, is light thing-like or is it stuff-like? Is it made up of particles or is it made up of mashed potatoes? Okay? And what he did 
is he put, this is a, what's called his double slit experiment. This is a barrier. This is, uh, obviously I have two slits, slit number one, slit number two, and he put a light source. I'll make it the sun, but it's not. It was, and, and they do this, by the way, with all kinds of things, but back in his day, he did it with a, uh, some kind of light source. And he, he shone that light because Newton uh, said that light was thing like Huygen thought otherwise. He thought it might be stuff like our wave. And, um, and Thomas Young decided to take on this experiment to figure out what light is like. Why do you need to know what light is like? Why? Is one of the names of God. I am the primable light, right? I am light. I am the light of the world. So he blasted this light. Now we have something that you have to understand. It's called, uh, I don't have much room, constructive and destructive interference. Okay? Constructive interference means that if two things are going along and they happen to match, okay, the two waves are going along and they happen to match, they will add together. Destructive means if one is out of phase with the other, they will destruct. And so when he fi- fired this light at this, at, at this barrier, he ended up with a waveform that looked like this. Okay, and if this, is, this would be highest intensity. And what he noticed was is that he had constructive interference where the light added to itself and made more intensity. But he also had voids. So he had destructive interference where the light canceled each other out. So how is it that I got light to cancel each other out? As it hit, now he knew, and he also did the experiment with, a, and I'll use bullets, but first I'll go with water. Okay? When you, when you shove water at these slits, you're going to end up with this exact waveform because I will have destructive interference here and I will have constructive interference out here. So I'll have waves that add to each other and I'll have waves that crash against each other and I will have these voids. So he immediately proved by shining the light through his double slit experiment, he proved that light was what? Wave-like. You know, you can think water, if you will. Light is wave-like. And Newton was wrong. Because Newton said it was thing-like. And I'm doing that very quickly. If you shoot a gun at this, by the way, and, and I'll get into this, I got in this discussion with Jack before the sermon, but um, you end up with a completely different waveform. But again, uh, you're going to find some quantum theorists that will, will uh, say otherwise, but they have a, what's called a perfect environment. But waves have this form. So when I shoot white light, I have the same form, if you will, as water. Constructive, destructive interference. Now, light is a wave, right? We have proven it. But not so fast. Young's experiment was replaced in the 20th century. And what did they use as a light source? They used, yes, actually they used a photon emitter, if you will. And it's capable of shooting one photon of light at a time, which is thing-like. So when they shot that one photon, here goes the photon. There it goes. That's it. Actually, I made it probably a little big, and you might think there's more than one. Now you might think there's one. There is one. 
That photon goes towards that. And it produced a waveform. Now, did it produce a waveform that did this? Or did it produce, in other words, no voids? Or did it produce a waveform one photon at a time? They shot it. One at a time. Or did it produce a waveform that had destructive interference and matched the water? Which waveform? Firing one photon at a time, one particle. What did I get? Water? Or did I get bullets? I got water. One at a time, I got a waveform with destructive and constructive pattern. Same pattern. So what's the obvious question? How is it that I could fire one photon and yet it produces... How does it interfere with itself? And what's the answer in quantum theory? The answer is, is that that one photon has to, in order to interfere with itself, it has to. In order to construct with itself, it has to do something. What is it that it has to do? It has to go through both slits at the same time. That's the only way it can produce a wave path. Each photon went through both slits at the same time and interfered with itself. Some of you are grueling, and some of you are stunned. Some of you are stunned while drooling. Let me read this to you. This is John Archibald Wheeler. Um, We're going to get into um, Einstein's theory of relativity in the coming weeks. Einstein and Niels Bohr argued over quantum for a long, long time. Fascinating discussion. They both knew the implication of it. They both understood what we were attempting to accomplish here. What are we attempting to accomplish? I am proving that you have an immortal soul, that you are designed physically and supernaturally. You have a mind that is autonomous and will survive the death of the body. That's what I'm proving to you. Some of you will say to me, I believe that already and I don't care. And I know something. I know that when the crisis comes, you'll fall like a, you'll fold like a, like a lawn chair. You'll run and scared and you won't make it. So what am I trying to give you? I'm trying to give you a ball bat, a bowie knife, something to fight with. So you don't just collapse on the battlefield and bleed to death. So you can actually pick up the flag and do something. Because why? I know you don't care about yourself. Do you care about others? You are required to warn others. You are required to witness, right? John Archibald Wheeler, uh, Einstein first. Einstein said, this is spooky. He's talking about entanglement. I I have things that just are stunning to the greatest intellects that have ever lived in the last 200 years. And they're still stunning. Wheeler said this, we will first understand how simple the universe is when we recognize how strange it is. In other words, the metaphysical implication of subatomic motion or mechanics and the ubiquity of law and the unseen force. 
next week, we will do chapter 9. Have a wonderful week. 12 pages. Take you 30 minutes tops. Read it five times. Trust me, that's a good idea. Let's stand and be dismissed.